Good morning. How's everybody doing? Smashing. It is a great day to be at Church of the King. Anybody want to guess why? Romans. Romans. We finished Romans and we are starting a new book today, a new series. We are studying the book of James and it's an awesome book. It is especially awesome for people who are doers, who people who want to act, who don't like to sit around speculating. If Paul was an intellectual, James is blue collar, son of a carpenter. If Paul is hard to understand, James is going to be hard to live up to, hard to do. Uh, the other day, uh, Peter got to drive his car, his car that he bought, by the way, um, for the first time on the road. He's taken some driver's ed classes. Now, Peter, uh, is it as easy as it looks when you get behind the wheel? It's not. Was it a little scary? Was it a little challenging? Um, anybody the kind of person that, uh, when it came to school, maybe didn't do so great in their classes because, you know, there's a, there's a, 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 a breach between all of the theoretical, hypothetical stuff that you learn and then, like, you know, real life. Like, there's just, like, a big distance, a big gulf between the two. And so, like, in school, it's like, I don't understand how any of this connects to reality. But then you get out into the real world and you, like, do stuff. And you actually are pretty okay. Like, you succeed. You do things. Right? You learn. Some things you got to learn just by doing. Peter's one of those kids who's just got to learn by doing. He's got to learn by actually getting behind the wheel of the car. Most of us are that way, actually. Right? If that's you, then James is for you. James is not about sitting around and daydreaming and thinking about big picture what-ifs and speculation. James is about action. James is about movement. James is writing what's called a general epistle, which just means it's not for one church in particular, it's for everybody, okay? It's just for everybody. It's for a lot of people. And what he's doing throughout the book is he's fighting the idea that faith is just something that can be contained, that it's an abstraction, that it's something that lives in your mind or maybe lives in your heart as a feeling. And James is just like, no, no. If that's your idea of faith, you don't understand faith because faith cannot be contained. Faith acts, faith works, faith moves, faith wants out, it has to be unleashed, or it's not actually real faith, period. So James writes, as we'll see, like a man on fire. His language is proverbial. In, in my opinion, James is the most like Jesus of any New Testament writer in how he speaks. Like how James writes is how Jesus preached, on fire. And there are reasons for that. It's the closest thing I feel like to the Sermon on the Mount. And what I feel like when I read James is that James was there. And, you know, Jesus said, go and teach everything that I taught and commanded. And James is just trying his best to channel the Sermon on the Mount. That feeling that suddenly somebody is here and he is alive. And he is saying things that I have never heard before. And he is setting my heart on fire. And he is telling me to do things that nobody has said before. He has a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning and a sense that God is real and he's really real, so you'd better live and act as if he's real and he sees you and he knows what you're doing. You better not live like it's hypothetical and can just be in your head. You better stop making excuses for why you don't obey his commands. You better get to work. And if you're one of those Pharisees that makes reasons and excuses for why you don't have to live a godly and holy life, you need to know you don't belong to him, and you're more like the demons than like God. 
So this morning we're going to jump right in. James is going to show us how faith works in trials and in the midst of suffering. It's really the whole first chapter, but I'm not going to try to get through the whole first chapter today. I'm trying to be better on time. So um, James chapter 1, and here's the big idea, okay? The big idea is this. Faith understands that trials are how we grow, and that should make us happy. That should give us joy, and it should cause us to pursue wisdom that much harder so that we keep on growing, okay? So James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Okay, first thing is James. Who is James? There are three Jameses in the New Testament. We're pretty sure that this James is James, the brother of Jesus, as in son of Mary, brother of Jesus Christ. Mary was his mom. Joseph was his dad. Can you imagine what that would be like? You guys got uh, brothers and sisters? Can you imagine if your big brother was Jesus? It'd be simultaneously amazing and terrible, right? Some of y'all grew up in a house with a brother or sister who could do no wrong. Yeah? What if your brother could literally do no wrong? That would be kind of cool, but it would also just be like suffocating, oppressive, horrible. Something went bad, and it's you and Jesus in the room. Guess who's getting the blame? It's going to be you. It'll be tough. Uh, how many of you were at the round table last week? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You should have been there. If you weren't, you missed out. The big question of the night was, can we trust the Bible, right? And one of the things we talked about how, is how the Bible is its own evidence for itself, okay? And this is what I mean, okay? Brothers and sisters, yeah, raise your hands. Raise your hands, keep them up, okay? Now, your brother, your sister, if I asked you, are they God incarnate? Well, they might be the devil, right? But not God incarnate. So if you want some proof that the Bible is legit, look no farther than this, that James, Jesus' own brother, worshipped Jesus as God, followed him, served the church, wrote a book of the Bible. We have it in our hands. It is evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. How easy would it be for you to worship your brother and write a book of the Bible? Pretty rough, right? Unless, unless it was true. James is the brother of Jesus. So yes, James, or Jesus really had brothers. Uh, if any of you grew up Roman Catholic, I don't have time to go into it, but James had, or Jesus had brothers and sisters. They show up at various places in the New Testament. You can read about it. Mary wasn't always a virgin because that's how babies work, okay? Um, James isn't even the only brother of Jesus to write a book of the Bible. There's another one. It's Jude. Real name Judas. I wonder why he started going by Jude. James is Jesus' brother. And reading between the lines as we go through the New Testament, it doesn't seem like James was always a servant of God or that he actually always believed Jesus was who he said he was. There was a time when Jesus' family thought he was crazy. And so in John 7, we see his brothers taunting him. Okay, he's and mocking him. He's about to go up to a feast, or they're about to go up to a feast in Jerusalem. They say this, 
His brother said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seems to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Okay? So this is James. There was a time when James thought he knew Jesus better than just about anybody. And he knew better than to follow the crowd that followed Jesus. Then something happened to him. Jesus was crucified. Jesus rose from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15.7 says that then Jesus appeared to James. James went from being the brother of Jesus to a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is how he describes himself. Jesus became a pillar of the church, one of the pastors of the church at Jerusalem. He finally knew his brother for who he really was. And eventually so did the whole family. In Acts chapter 1, there's 120 people gathered in a room, and it says this, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So Jesus' family is there. His family's there. They grew up with him. They thought they knew him. They didn't really know him as he was for a long time. Some of you have grown up around Jesus in the church. You think you know Jesus as well as about anybody. There's a world of people who have grown up in the church. They think they've seen all there is to see. They think they've learned all there is to learn. They think they know all there is to know. But they haven't actually known Jesus. And here's the difference. People who have truly known Jesus, who truly know him, are changed. They are transformed. This is the letter of James, a man who has been set on fire by God. And this is how he introduces himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. He's humble. No need to flex here. James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary. No need for that. And he's writing to 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, some people think we're talking about the fact that in the Old Testament, God's people were under judgment. They were scattered to the nations. But what I think is really going on here is he was the pastor at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem grew fast. It was a day of revival. Thousands of people were being added to their number day after day. Jesus had been resurrected. He'd been seen by people. The Holy Spirit had come upon them with power. The church exploded. The enemies of God were on their heels, and then they regrouped, and then they began to persecute the church. And the church scattered and left and went to the surrounding regions. And I think James is just a good pastor. His flock is scattered. And so he writes a letter to them, knowing that they have suffered a lot. They've packed up and they've left. They've taken their families. They've left their homes. They're on the road. They're in new towns and new cities. And they have suffered and suffered and suffered. And he wants to write a letter to encourage them. So he begins this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, so who here, when they meet a trial of various kinds, has the natural response of joy. Trials are hard. Trials are also inevitable. James says, when you meet them. Not if, but when. In this world, you will face trials. You will have troubles. It's inescapable. But why meet them with joy? He explains, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So, joy in the midst of trials. Trials is a big word. It can mean a lot of things. It's very broad. We can go through trials of all kinds for all kinds of reasons. And some of those reasons are outside of us. Some can be within us as a result of our own sin. We face a disease or a sickness of our own or of somebody that we love. Someone we love dies. We're hurt deeply by somebody that we love. We have enemies who are after us for reasons we might not understand. Maybe they just hate God. Maybe we represent God to them. In any case, trials all have one thing in common, and that's pain. Trials hurt. They cause pain and suffering. And this is what James says. Every time you face a trial, every time you face pain and suffering in this life, it is a test of your faith. Our faith is constantly being tested. Sin and suffering test our ability to trust in a good God who loves us. The enemies of God want us to suffer so that we'll deny God. They're out to put our faith to the test. They want to prove it's fake. They want to prove that it's weak, that we're frauds. And maybe if we're frauds and we prove to be frauds, it'll prove that our God is a fraud. It's a big part of why Christians have always been persecuted. It's also a big part of how the church grows, because as God strengthens us to remain steadfast in the midst of trials, what happens? People see, and they start to ask questions. Why would someone endure so much? How could this be so important to them? James with James. Isn't this James guy, isn't he Jesus' brother? Surely of all people, he has to know the truth. Why are these people willing to endure what they endure and suffer it with joy? So the question then is, this morning, what trials are you enduring? What troubles are you facing? What temptations? Because everyone here is going through something. It may not be a big thing, but everybody's going through something. It may be many things, big things, it may be small things, maybe both. And most everyone here knows someone who's going through something harder than they are. We know people who have cancer. We know people who are dying. We've lost loved ones. Some of us have recently lost loved ones or we're about to. Maybe some of you, you're dealing with old wounds wounds that go to your childhood or wounds that resurface in your marriage or with your kids. Maybe you have pain or difficulty in your marriage or with your kids. Maybe you're struggling financially or with a job. Maybe you don't like your job, the fatigue is wearing on you. Maybe you're struggling with relationships with family or coworkers or neighbors. Maybe you're under the gun somewhere in your life because of your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've had to draw some hard lines with kids at school and they're trying to make you pay. Maybe some of the trials you're facing are your own fault through the consequences of your sin catching up to you and now you've just got to deal with it. Your sin, your failure. And you have to deal with it with faith. Maybe you're looking at the political situation in our country right now and you're feeling anxious and afraid. You went through the trial we all endured together known as 2020 and you're thinking about it and, th and praying that God keep us from something like that again. 
Jesus wants you and me to look at the trials we face and to count it all joy, all of it, every last part. Not because the trial itself is necessarily a good thing, but because within the trial is a test, and within the test is an invitation to grow, to be strengthened, to become more like Jesus. Trials come and they strip away the fluff and the distractions. A couple weeks ago, I was at at a uh, funeral attended by a bunch of Southern Baptists. Amanda and I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Somebody we knew died. Um, I think I was one of three people there under the age of 60. Um, How many of you have been in one of those big mausoleums? Been in one of those? We were in this little chapel that doubles as a mausoleum. And so we're surrounded on all sides by the dead, stacked floor to ceiling, way up above us. And we sing, how great thou art, and it is well. And you've never in your life seen Southern Baptists be so charismatic. Raised hands, tears flowing down the cheeks. Why? Because we're all just close to death. And when you're close to death, you're close to God. The veil is stripped back, and you have to reckon with realities that you don't normally reckon with. You have to reckon with Him and with eternity. And then while you're in there, surrounded by the dead, with an open casket in front of you, you're singing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. And then you just start crying. And then when you come to the clouds being rolled back as a scroll, It doesn't feel like some cheap hope. It doesn't feel like some fantasy. It feels like you feel the full force of it because death is real and it's not natural and it is an enemy and you're facing it. And you know you have a king who squared up and faced it and defeated it. Trials are clarifying. They make you see what matters most. They purge the junk. They make it clear what matters and who matters and who's there and who's not when you're under the gun, who you want or need to be there, who you can and can't live without. I have friends from baseball. Some of you might know them. I won't say their names, but if you know, you know. Uh, Mom was diagnosed with cancer not too long ago. Doesn't look good. They had big plans for their lives this year, making big moves. Over Christmas, doctors said, "Ah, there's nothing more we can do for you. Every doctor she'd gone to. And then a treatment facility out in Arizona said yes. So like in 48 hours or something, packed up the whole family. They're in Arizona. They just moved. Gone. Talked to dad about it. It's only one thing that matters in his life right now, and it's not the money, it's not his plans, it's not the future. It's just his wife. Whatever it takes, right? Trials are clarifying. They show us what matters. And they take away your crutches. They reveal who you are. They reveal what you trust. Because who you are under pressure is who you really are. Who you are in a trial is who you really are. And what you believe and trust in and lean on under pressure is what you really believe. We all have this illusion we like to maintain that we're good, we've got things together, and it's just the horrible, crummy circumstances of our lives that are the problem. 
So you've been here before. I was doing good. And then, you know, I met this pretty great person. I, I was a pretty great person. We got married. And then, man, now I just am really angry and frustrated. And I thank God it was this woman that you gave me. Marriage is a blessing and a beautiful thing. It's also pressure, right? A test that reveals who you are. I thought we had things figured out. We were doing pretty well until we started having these kids. Then I started getting really impatient and angry and sad and afraid and must be these kids. I saw David cast side eye at Leo. Oh, yeah. like, Leo, man, <laughs> Lucas. I, you were great until they came along, I know. No, pressures, trials, and tests, they reveal the truth about us. And then we have an opportunity. Stand up and grow or lay down and blame. And if we don't like what we see when we look inside and don't have the courage and the guts to stand up and face ourselves and face our sin, we'll just look for somebody to blame. And it'll be our husband, our wife, our kids, our job, our boss, our circumstances. They'll be the problem. They're not the problem. We are. And our faith, our hope, our crutches, they all get exposed and revealed. When you're in pain and when you're under pressure, what do you reach for? Remote? Phone? PlayStation? Bottle? A bat or a ball? The Bible? God brings trials into our lives, and sometimes they don't make sense of, uh, to us. Sometimes we don't understand. Cancer is hard to understand. Death is hard to understand. Suffering sometimes just seems senseless. We look at God and we can ask why. But every trial is a test, and every test is an opportunity to grow. And the goal of the Christian life is to grow. Whatever we face, failures, sins, trials, temptations, we move forward toward Jesus in the midst of them. In trials, our faith is really put to the test, and the faith of those we love is put to the test. And the question is, will we hold fast? Will we be steadfast even when we are facing death? Sure. Fight for your cure. Fight for hope. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Truly. But the real test of our faith is not whether or not we can hold out for a miracle to the end. It's whether or not we can say, whether we live or die, we belong to Jesus. Or harder than that, whether my dad lives or dies, whether my grandma lives or dies, whether my husband, whether my wife lives or dies, we belong to Jesus. Whether we suffer or not, we belong to Jesus and we long to be more like him. So whatever he gives us is good. And we receive it. When trials come, we learn to see the gift in them, and we have to learn it. We have to learn to find the joy in them. And we learn through hard experience to see the opportunity in the midst of the pain, the opportunity to show the world that the Lord is God and He is good no matter what we suffer. And because He is good and loves us and wants us to be sure that we fully, or wants to be sure that we fully depend on Him, he doesn't hesitate to knock our crutches out from underneath us. But why? 
so that we learn to walk, maybe someday to run, so that we can be as much like him now as we will be on that day when we're united with him and there is no more pain or suffering and death. But we can't do that if we live in denial about the things that we face, if we paper over it and avoid processing the trials that God brings. We can't do it if we're just always trying to play the victim, and we can't do it if we're just trying to fix everything and solve all the problems. Some problems can't be solved. Some things can't be fixed. The world is broken. Sin is real. Death is real. One way or another, it's coming for us all. We're all going to die. So when we face trials of various kinds, we have to actually face them with faith. Faith in a God who saves and heals and a God who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. But wherever and however he leads us, a God who loves us, who is good, and who wants us to be more like Christ. And so as we do that, we then need to remember that we serve a Jesus who has been through more than we have, worse than we have, for our sake. He left heaven and he became a man. He went through this life from birth to death. He knows what it is to be alone. He knows what it is to be homeless and hungry and thirsty and hurt and rejected and taken advantage of, abused, mocked, ridiculed, rejected by his own family, physically tortured, and he knows what it is to die. There's nothing we walk through that he doesn't walk through first. He understands what we're going through in our trials. And that's why he doesn't spare us from them. Instead, he loves us through them. He loves us through them because they make us like him. Book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus endured everything we did as our great high priest so that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. You know what else it says? It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What an amazing statement. The Son of God, the perfect Son of God, was perfected through suffering. What does that even mean? He was. That's how we're perfected. If we endure because the devil and the world come at us just like they came at Jesus, want to beat us down and make us doubt the goodness of God and the promises of God. And our job is to get back up on our feet and keep coming, like a fighter in the ring. Fill our hearts with the joy of battle, because every blow is an opportunity to show Jesus to the world and to grow. He endured the suffering of the cross with joy, for the joy set before him, it says. You know what it says about fighters? Everyone who thinks, everybody thinks they can fight until they step in the ring and take a punch in the mouth, right? Maybe that's Mike Tyson. Everyone thinks they're a Christian until the first trial comes and you get punched in the mouth. It's easy until you're tested. And then your strength is proved and your character is proved and your training is proved and your faith is proved. So when it says that Jesus was perfected through suffering, what I think it means is that he was proved through his suffering. He was prepared for it. He was perfect. He still had to meet every test head on, and he still had to be tested, and he still had to come through it. He still had to endure it. He had to live it. He had to walk it, and he passed every test, and we follow in his footsteps, except we're not going to pass every test, right? Sometimes we'll get knocked down because we're not perfect, but we are being perfected, and if we're being perfected, we get back on our feet. 
How many times in your life have you been knocked down and tempted to believe that God's promises aren't true? Tempted to believe that God's blessings aren't real. Tempted to believe that Jesus was lying. How many of you believe that God is sovereign and rules everything as king? How many of you believe that he's good and that he loves you? And how many of you live lives full of anxiety and fear? As if he is not the king of heaven who loves you. How many of you believe you have access in Jesus to the God who holds the heavens together by his word? That you can come to him and talk to him, that he hears you and answers you like a father with a child? How many of you live lives of impotent rage, beaten down, feeling like you have a voice that can't be heard? What do you really believe? Trials come into our lives. Pressure comes into our lives. They prove us. They test us. They test our faith. And when we lay down, we blame God for our troubles and sufferings. And when we stand tall and endure with joy, we find that God is with us. He's in control. His promises are true. He's there in the storm, and we can trust him with our lives and our families and the world and all of its craziness. The world changes, our circumstances change, our lives change, bad things happen, and we serve a faithful God, and every trial is an opportunity for us to grow in our trust of him and to mature. The more you endure, the more you trust, the more you see his faithfulness, the more his promises prove true, and the more steadfast you become, because he just never lets you down. His promises really are true. He really is there. When it feels like the world is against you and the people you love are against you and the people who are supposed to be for you are against you, above it all stands this promise. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do they want to hurt you? Punish you? Drag your name through the mud? Drag your family through the mud? If God is for you, what can they do? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How many of you have been in the storm of life where the pressures have increased and the trials have increased and you just feel like, I have no idea what to do now? Just no idea. No clue what's next, no clue what step to take. I'm lost. Problems you don't know how to fix. Feel like you have no control, you just got nothing. You don't have the wisdom that you need. Wisdom comes from God. Often it comes from God through experience, through pain, through suffering, and through failure. But you have to fight for it. You have to earn it. But here's a beautiful thing. Especially when, when we're in the midst of pain and when we feel like we're in a cro at a crossroads. Crossroads in your marriage, a crossroads with your kids, crossroads with your job. You don't know what to do. The beautiful thing is you have a Father in heaven who loves you and who is generous. And you can just ask him. 
God loves us and wants us to live lives full of wisdom. And the older I get, and I'm officially old now apparently, I was yesterday, yesterday I was speaking at a youth conference um, and this kid came up to me afterward and he said, I really appreciate it when, uh, and this is a direct quote, <laughs> uh, I really appreciate it when old timers like you are able to relate to us and not just feel like the hey fellow kids meme. So I'm an old timer now. (laughs) I told Seth last week, I turned 40, and I told Seth that if his goal was to be at the hip cool church, I hit 40, and so he's got to find another church. (laughs) Amanda and I have been together 20 years. We've been married for 17 of those. We've been in ministry for all 17 of those years in one form or another. And I know that to some of you, I'm not that old. You'll resonate with what I'm saying, though, I think. The older I get, the more I find myself just praying that God would give me wisdom. And it's not because I'm so much wiser. It's because the darker things get, the more light I need. Just to see the next steps, right? And it often just feels like life gets better and harder at the same time. The joys get deeper and so do the sorrows. And holding those both together and walking forward in the fear of God and hope with joy. It just takes wisdom that I don't have. Sometimes we don't ask people for things because we don't believe they're generous. We don't believe they want to give us good things. We think they're going to reproach us for wanting things or wanting good things. Sometimes we're right about that. Sometimes we're wrong. Often that doubt is just in us. I was talking to those kids yesterday and talking to them about uh, what it means. Uh, They wanted me to talk to them about biblical sexuality. I was talking about being a man and growing and working from the approval of God instead of for it. How striking it was to me the moment I realized that when God the Father declared his love and approval for God the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It was at the start of his ministry before he had done a single thing. Preached a sermon, heal the soul. And that was the strength that God the Father gave Jesus the Son to go out into battle and to suffer for three years. This is my, publicly declared, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so if we're in Jesus, we work from the approval of God and not for it. And some of you think that God's a father that he can never be pleased with you and he's just waiting for you to screw up. And if that's you, I'm sorry you had a bad dad. We ask people for things because we don't think they're generous and sometimes that doubts in us. Uh, The other night, my kids all came early to help set up for the round table Lucy was setting up, but she was also supposed to work childcare, so she was setting up chairs, and then Meredith came and said, hey, you need to get over to childcare because kids are going to start showing up. Uh, but she hadn't eaten anything, and so, and she was scared to ask. She's afraid that she'd be reproached for wanting a slice of pizza. Okay, so maybe some of that's my fault as a dad. Maybe some of that's in Lucy. But she should have just asked because Miss Meredith wasn't going to send her over there without food, right? She just didn't know. Whatever we think of our dads or our moms or our pastors or our elders or our youth group leaders, 
One thing is certain, and that is that God loves and is generous to his kids, and he does not fault us when we come to him and ask him for good things, especially wisdom. He loves to give good gifts. We'll talk about that more later in the first chapter of James. He especially loves to give the gift of wisdom. King Solomon, wisest man to ever live, wrote the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. You know the story of how he became so wise? He's anointed king, and God comes to him in a dream and says, ask me for whatever you want. And he says, I just want wisdom to govern your people. And God says, because this was in your heart and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you and have not asked for a long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also grant you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings who, ha- who were before you and none after you shall have the like. In other words, God says, you could ask me for anything, but you ask for wisdom, you're going to get wisdom in everything else. God loves to give good gifts to his children, and he gives us wisdom through his word, and he gives us wisdom through prayer, and he gives us wisdom through life experiences, and through failures, and through trials, and through wise teachers, and mothers, and fathers, and sisters, and brothers who can look at us and say, I have been there, I have walked down that road, I have traveled those paths, and here's what I've learned. But to receive God's wisdom requires humility and faith, and the desire to walk by faith and not by sight. And what happens to a lot of us when we get blindsided, when we're under pressure, when we're suffering, is we panic. We lose sight of God. We flail around for anything that looks like it'll float, tossed like the waves, double-minded. Pain comes. We're tossed about by our fears, our emotions, our doubts, like a wave of the sea. And we're all sort of just like Peter when Jesus is out walking on the water. You remember the story, right? Jesus is walking on the water. Peter says, if that's really you, command me to come out. And Jesus does. So Peter gets out on the water. He's got his eyes fixed on Jesus. He's walking until he notices the waves. Then he panics and he gets double-minded. He's between Jesus and the boat. He doesn't know which way to turn. When the waves come, when the trials come, are you going to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are you going to panic and flail and look around for the boat? If you're double-minded, you're going to sink. If you trust Jesus and keep your eyes fixed on him in the midst of your pain, it does not matter if you understand it all. It doesn't matter if it makes sense. If you can hold fast to him, he will never let you down. All his promises are true. And there's wisdom for you and grace for you and growth for you. This past week, Amanda and I were out of town. We had a miscommunication about the church we were supposed to visit. We ended up at this other church sort of last minute. Pastor stood up and said, normally I preach verse by verse through the Bible. Today I'm just going to tell you the story of my life and my ministry. I think you deserve to know the truth about me. I think you deserve to know where I come from, why I'm moving the direction I am as your pastor why this church is moving the direction it is. And then he began to talk about how he spent his first 12 years in ministry and crippling anxiety and fear and guilt. He got started on staff, working 60 hours a week uh, while in seminary in his first year of marriage. Part of one of the 50 fastest growing churches in America, publishing books, writing music, planning conferences. And... He was constantly stressed, emotionally afraid, and then he sat down to talk to a retired pastor in his 60s 
And he just broke down and started to ask, what am I doing? Do I really believe that Jesus is real? Do I believe he means what he says? Or am I just trying to be a part of the big cool thing? Jesus' promises are real. And they're true. Some of you are gardeners, farmers from farm families, have some history with that sort of thing. Whether or not you know this, uh, because you've driven down an interstate or a country road at the right time of year, fertilizer stinks. It smells. It's gross. It's rot and decay. It's been through some things, literally. (laughs) And it's what we plant our seeds in. So they grow. God's promises are true and we have to cling to them, especially in the midst of our pain and trials. What will happen over time is that we will find that our trials, the dark nights, the pain, the places where we feel like there are no way out, are God's fertilizer where he sows the seeds of his blessing that bear fruit down the line. The fruit of wisdom and growth and maturity and steadfastness. So the trials that you're facing now, face them with joy. You get confused, you ask for wisdom. You trust that God will grant you everything you need to endure to the end. Because we serve a big God who is over everything that happens in this life, who loved us even when we were his enemies, who sent Jesus to die for us, to suffer the punishment we can't bear, so that the little things in this life that we deal with are nothing compared to the glory that's to be revealed. He is for us if we belong to him. And if that's true, nobody can be against us. And no trial will be the end. It will just be the beginning of something better. Let's pray. Father, we, when we're in the midst of pain, it is hard to be thankful and it is hard to have joy. We thank you for all the ways that you have taught us, that you love us, that you are with us. I pray that we would cling to you, that we would cling to your promises, and that we would be steadfast, and that we would face the trials in our lives with true joy. We pray that you would cause us to grow in wisdom and maturity and strength, each of us in this room as individuals and us as a church. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.